So that's Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 14. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become a level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Thank you very much to our musicians and to those who've read and uh, played. Now, carol services give us a great opportunity to invite uh, family and friends along who aren't Christians. And that's a, a great thing for us to be able to do uh, this Christmas time. Many of us here are Christians, and I'm keen as minister that Advent doesn't pass us by, and that we allow by God's Word and His Spirit some of the great blessings and encouragements and comforts of the facts of salvation to really impact us this Christmas time. So in the services around the carol services, we're going to be looking at some of the great promises in the Old Testament, not simply the predictive element of them, what's going to happen in the future, but the effective ingredients. So why were they written? They were written to encourage uh, God's people who are weary. Now, Scott, who's speaking tonight at the carol service, came up with the theme for this year's Christmas, A Weary World Rejoices. When he came up with that, some of us went for the weary, as Sarah prayed. We are weary. The world is weary. We're normally weary at this time of year. We're normally and often weary in life, but there's a particular weariness that steals upon humanity at the moment. Others of us picked out rejoicing. 
But a weary world rejoices is a great theme for uh, Advent. And that comes from Britain's number one carol, O Holy Night. And the chorus of that Christmas carol, Fall on Your Knees. Now we pray that as we sing it tonight and as Scott explains the gospel, people will fall on their knees and worship Jesus as their Savior. But as Christians, I want us over this Advent season, and maybe I speak to myself as much as anyone, to fall on our knees and worship our Savior and express our dependence on Him and receive comfort from Him and not be afraid to demonstrate to Him our affection, our emotions, our trust as we understand all that it means to call him Jesus, my Savior, in our lives and in our world. So let me pray that God, by his Spirit, will steal upon our hearts in a special way. Our Father, we sense weariness and feel it oftentimes, perhaps particularly at the moment. We cry once again, Lord, for mercy and your intervention in this global issue. I pray that you would lead us out of it, but that in doing so you would cause us, many people, to look to you for the answers that cannot be found anywhere else bar in Jesus. And Lord, for these next few moments as Christians. We pray that we would not be afraid or feel guilty by resting in and relishing and loving the blessings that you bestow to us in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we love with all our hearts, with all our souls, minds, and strength. And we pray for that, and in his name and for his sake. Amen. Isaiah is a great uh, prophecy in the Old Testament. We are in Isaiah 40, one of the most famous uh, chapters in the Bible. It has strengthened me this week, and I pray it will strengthen you. The book of Isaiah as a whole. Isaiah contains a number of sermons preached by Isaiah, God's prophet, in the period 740 to 680 BC, to the southern kingdom of Judah. That bit of factual history is important for us because what is written here was written hundreds of years, millennia before the events that it promised. The purpose of Isaiah, or these big prophetic books, is twofold. Number one, prophecy or prediction about the future. There are key events 
prophesied in the book of Isaiah way back then. Firstly, that God's people would go into exile in Babylon because of their disobedience. That would happen and did happen about a hundred years after Isaiah said it would. But also promises of hope. Three events would happen in the future. The future with respect to Isaiah's time. Number one, that after the exile, God's people would be restored. They'd be back in the promised land. Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Second promise of hope, that Christ or the Messiah would come. What Isaiah didn't say or God didn't inspire him to say is that it would be 700 years. And the third promise is that Jesus, the Messiah, would come again in a second advent and establish a new creation. And Isaiah did not say then that that would be, well, longer than two and three-quarter millennia in the future. And we still anticipate that. Just mark the distance between the promise and the restoration after the exile and the coming of Christ and the return of Christ. The previous promises, especially the coming of the Christ, was a long, long time in coming. And he has given us his message to proclaim to every nation on the earth and every people. And that includes people tonight and next Sunday who will hear it for the first time or in whose hearts it will penetrate for the first time. It's going to take a long, long time for God's grace to run out of steam and to send his son again. Three peaks of prophecy. Restoration, after the exile, the coming of Christ, the return of Christ, and the new creation. But prophecies like Isaiah are not just to point us to the future. They have a pastoral purpose. And the pastoral purpose of books like Isaiah is warning, call to repentance, yes. But also, and this is what I want us to take from Isaiah 40 today and then Isaiah 9 on Christmas Day and on Boxing Day, encouragement or strengthening for God's people, not when they stand at the top of the mountain peaks and put a stone on the cairn, but when they are in the long centuries of valleys between the mountain peaks. I was reading this week someone's description of what it's like to be a Christian or what it's like to be a human being, I guess. It's like walking up a sand dune when very quickly your legs get tired and one foot forward is half a foot backwards as you slip down through the sand. Now, Isaiah is written to us 
because we can lose heart in trusting. It's not that we don't believe the promises. I don't think I have ever not believed that the promises are true. I don't think I have ever not believed that Jesus Christ will come again and there will be a new creation. But in the short span of years I am living as a Christian, there are long periods of time where I grow weary in my believing of these promises. Or I don't doubt, and I guess you don't doubt, that God is sovereign over your life. And that all that happens in your life is under his sovereign control. I don't doubt that in my head. But I grow weary of keeping on believing it, confused often by the circumstances around us. Like the people of God in exile in Babylon, people like Daniel, must have grown weary of 70 years of exile all of his life, waiting for the return. Or the people of God back in the Promised Land in 530-odd BC. The, the, the temple was not as big as it used to be. But there was that promise of a Messiah to come. But one, two, three, four, five centuries passed. And the people of God nearly were wiped out in the second century BC. And I wonder if people gathered around their equivalent of the tea table through these long centuries would say, Son, we need to believe these promises. But there would be a weariness in the way that that was said. Because our hearts and minds are crying, why or when and what is going on? Now that's the stuff of Isaiah 40. Now three headings, very simple, uh, to take us through the chapter. Really simple. God's promises, God's power, and God's will. And by will I mean sort of compassionate willingness or desire to do it. Now each point answers a question, what has God promised us? Followed by the question, is God powerful enough to keep his promises? And I think the third one is the key one for me, certainly. Will he? Or does he want to? Does he love us? Now, God's promises, let me just crack through them. That sounds terrible with a wonderful chapter like this. 
but we don't have time. I've got to be back for rehearsal at two, and my wife is in America, and there are so many jobs that I've got to do, <laughs> like walk the dog and find the children <laughs> and find some food. Please come home if you're listening. Why did I say that all out loud? <laughs> it's heartfelt. It's heartfelt. Promises. Number one, God will pardon our iniquities. Verses one and two. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Her iniquity or her sins are pardoned. God will pardon our iniquities. He will forgive our sins. That is a reference, I think, in part to the first peak of fulfillment when God brought his people back out of the exile. God had pardoned them for their disobedience, but it's primarily a reference to the second peak of fulfillment, the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the Word made flesh, redeeming flesh that would be nailed to a cross where forgiveness would flow to all who believe in Jesus. That is comfort for the soul. That is what Scott will speak of tonight. It is an invitation to those of us, and many of us here, have received that. Just let the comfort of being forgiven wash over your soul and your mind. It means that there is no condemnation. It means that your sins are unknown to God, for He has forgotten them, past, present, and future. It means that the wrath and judgment of God is extinguished for you. Not set aside, not put away in a storeroom. It is extinguished. There is no wrath in the heart of God that pertains to you in existence because the righteousness of Christ is yours. And to grasp that is heartwarming. It's not that we've been forgiven. It's not a verdict that God gives us. It's a state. It's a fact. It's an experience. God looks at you, and He forgets your sin in terms of salvation. And there is no condemnation for you. Now, that fact has another side to it as a coin, that it burdens us in our families for those who do not know Jesus. And so it should. That's why we have carol services. But allow yourself to reflect on the side of the coin that is the Christian salvation. That as you sit here this morning or listen online, if Christ is your Savior, your sins are forgiven, you have an eternity with Him, there is no condemnation. Secondly, verses 3 to 5, he will reveal his glory. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. 
the uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. When? Go forward to the second peak of prophecy. John the Baptist in the wilderness repeats these words. At that time, Jesus appeared, the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate divine, walking on the earth, your Savior and mine, so that we can see him, listen to his teaching, and watch him die for us and be raised to give us life. Here's John 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We have seen His glory. How have we seen His glory? Because our eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit, and our hearts opened to be warm in our affection to Jesus. And even though we have not seen Him in person, we, 1 Peter, love Him. You cannot love someone you do not know. You cannot fall in love with someone you do not know. And you love him because you know him. Of course, it is also the revelation of His glory, a pointer to the new creation. There's a song that has this line in it, when I stand in glory, there is a Redeemer, I think it is the song. Scott's nodding. Can we have it sometime again? Good. These marvelous lines from these songs. When I stand in glory, I will see his face. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah. When I stand in glory, you and I, if we are believers, will one day stand in glory. We will stand on a very different earth, a new creation, where there will be nothing like what's going on on a global, national, personal scale that goes on in our lives, when I stand in glory, and I will, I will see his face. Whose face? Jesus' face. What a wonderful prospect. Promise number three, he will keep his word. Verse 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. What a message of comfort that is. God has given us his full and final revelation in his word. And here we are on a Sunday morning, and I can promise you, if you are listening, that God's word will not leave you unaffected on this one day in our little tiny lives, in our little tiny church, in this part of the world, the Word of God stands forever. It's great to have the Word of God as the lamp and guide and surety in our lives. And final promise, 
Promise one, he forgives our sins. Promise two, he shows us his glory in the person of Jesus Christ, and we will see into Christ's face one day. We will look and gaze upon his beautiful face. He will keep his word. His word is truth. And lastly, 9 through 11, he will shepherd his flock. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now, do not let the intimacy of these verses become sentimental, but do not let the risk of sentimentality distract us from embracing the intimacy of these verses. Now, I don't know if you know much about sheep. I know nothing about sheep, apart from the fact that they're stupid. You know, when you I see lots of sheep in the Pentlands when I'm walking, and they run away and they get confused. And I don't want to hurt them, but they think I do. And one runs and they all run. Sheep are daft. And they do not survive on the hills without a shepherd. For the shepherd feeds them, the shepherd leads them, and the shepherd protects them. And you and I are no less daft than one of these sheep no less dependent, no less fickle, no less swayed by the crowd, no less hungry for food that we cannot provide. Jesus is your shepherd. And we're just a bunch of sheep, hurting sheep, lonely sheep, wandering sheep, Sometimes in a church, grumpy sheep, difficult sheep. I'm one of them. Just sheep. Come to terms with the fact that this image of Jesus is necessary for you and me in life, that he picks us up like a lamb and carries us in his bosom all the way to the new creation. It is affectionate, not sentimental. So there are the promises. You are forgiven. You have seen his glory because God has opened your eyes and you will stand before your Savior one day for some of us, that might be soon. For all of us, it will happen if we are Christians and we will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You have His Word. It is firm. It is sure. When Scott preaches the gospel tonight, he knows, we know, that it is the power of God for the salvation of humanity. And we have a shepherd who gathers us in his arms and leads us and will bring us home. 
It's striking that these are the promises Isaiah focuses on. Question, is God powerful enough to do all that he promises? That's a great question the prophet asks, because we make all sorts of promises. But we don't have the power to pull them off. But God does. And what Isaiah does in verses uh, 12 through 17 is remind us that God is the creator. He, th- this intimacy of God as the shepherd holding us in, the, in his, his bosom at his, at his chest, protecting us, uh, now he wants to distance God from us and say that you are a creature, he is the creator. So you're a sheep, he's the shepherd. You're a creature, he's the creator. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? I became a plain spotter last Wednesday and tracked Sally's passage from here to, where is she? Austin in Texas. She crossed the Atlantic in the hollow of God's hand. That's the image. God's creative acts are, well, there's no comparative or superlative or analogy. God's mind, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what showed him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And then, verse 15, God is independent of us. He does not need our help. There's a doctrine uh, called the doctrine of aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. It means the non-needfulness of God. God does not need us. It doesn't mean he doesn't love us. He loves us so much that he gave his son to die for us. He made us in his image. He will restore us in his image. But God doesn't need us. God is independent of any dependence. Verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor is its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon is the place on the earth uh, with the best forest, that's not enough wood that God needs, and the place with the most animals, that's not enough for sacrifices. All the nations are nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Remember, these are words of encouragement to weary believers. This is not a rebuke that God is sovereign over the nations. This is an encouragement to us that God is sovereign over the nations. And he is beyond all comparison, verses 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God? You ask a child to draw God. They will draw someone that in their mind looks like what they think God is like. And I don't think we let that go when we become adults. We have pictures of God. And I want to suggest to us that our picture in our minds of God is less than God is. By logic, it is less than all that He is. We cannot draw God. We cannot paint 
God. We cannot take any human construct or category and project it and get God. And he has no rivals. Verse 23, he brings princes to nothing. Princes means powerful people, governments, business leaders, cultural icons, media moguls, and influencers. And let me pause there in case you misunderstand that. I watched, uh, like you have watched, or maybe didn't watch, various briefings this week from ministers, first ministers, prime ministers. What a nightmare for these people. Trying to make a fist of what's going on. And so we pray for them that they will look to God. One of the journalists asked a question and said, look, we just can't seem to control this. It's out of our hands. We all, as humanity, need to look to God. And pray in the present crisis that something will happen that can have scientific or medical explanation that will take the sting out of this. And we're all at different ranges on the scale of COVID warriors. Is that fair? I'm off the scale. The wrong side. But I know, maybe you're like me, that God is sovereign over the earth. And you kind of, you fight for the security of that knowledge. You fight to let it go from your head to your heart to your feet. To go out, to come to church, whatever. But he is sovereign. He is sovereign. And I am safe, and you are safe. For you are forgiven, you have seen his glory, you have his word. He is your shepherd. He is holding you in the cradle of his arms. And all of a sudden, the God who is holding you in the cradle of his arms is so big that you cannot even fathom him. The creator embraces you. The son who created is incarnate in flesh. And it returns, is God powerful enough to bring us home to glory? Verses 25 to 26, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. So as you know, I often walk in the Pentlands. If I was to take one of my children with me, I'll not tell you which one it is. And I said to him, William, can you tell me about the, the stars, and he knows everything about the stars and the planets. And eventually I have to say, William, shh. But when you get somebody who knows about the universe and astronomy to tell you what it is you are looking at and how far away they are and how big they are and beyond what the eye can see and beyond what a telescope can see, that's the God 
who holds you like a shepherd in his arms. The strong arms, tender power over the earth and over our lives. Last question, and with this we finish. I have to keep my sermon short so I can do all my tasks and be back for two. Here's a great question at the end of Isaiah 40. Yes, God promises me these things. I know them in my head, and I know He is powerful enough to do all of these things. But does He want to? Does He will for this to happen? Does He will? Does He desire? Does He want to help me make progress up the sand dune, or does He watch me falling back? Question, verse 27. Spot-on question. Why do you say, O Jacob, Jacob, the people of God, it could be us, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. So think of your life, think of your circumstances, think of the present sand dune you are walking up. It is so easy for me or you to say, yes, this is true, but my life is hidden from you. You don't care about my life, my walk, my journey, my sand dune. And how many of us have said that? And God's answer to the question is twofold. It is secondly, and we'll come to this, I will give to those who are weak strength. Before that, though, God tells us that He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And I think verse 28 is there to show us not that God is kind of beyond us and and, and an example to us, and, and if only we were like this, we would be better. I think it's just profoundly important to know that our Father in heaven never ever wearies or faints or loses heart. That as He looks on the globe today, He is steady and compassionate. We don't know the answer to the question why, but God does. And God is not wearied or anxious or disturbed or uncertain ever. And He promises the same to us. And this promise is one that I pray will come to your heart as it has to mine this week. And we need to keep coming back to ask for this promise to be fulfilled. Verse 29, He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Notice the condition of receiving strength, weakness. He does not give this power to those who have high self-esteem, for they will not ask for it or think they need it. He does not give this power to those who believe they can do it. And oftentimes, 
The long periods of doubt or weariness, certainly for me in my life, not doubts in my head, but doubt in my heart, doubt in my will, doubt in my life, is because I have not come to the point where I am humble enough to say, Lord Jesus, I am falling at your feet for help. And these wonderful promises. You've got to preach these verses differently at different services. You're all young. Many of you are youths. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Some of us here, like Dick here, down at the front, are not youths. But the promise, Dick, for you here and for any of us is the promise of spiritual vitality is ageless. That whatever age we are or whatever circumstances we are in, whether we are young, fit, and healthy in body or old and weary in body or young, fit, and healthy in body but weary in our souls, God will increase our strength. We shall mount up with wings like eagles. We shall run and not be weary. We shall walk and not be faint. That is inward spiritual strength to keep on walking up the sand dunes. It is ours for the asking if we admit our weakness. Look to the Lord, the Creator. What is offered to us in Jesus? Inward strength, serenity, dignity, security, forgiveness, a sight of his glory, the word of God, the shepherd care, and the inward strength and comfort and consolation that comes from all of that is something that the world can never give. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for this wonderful chapter in your word. All the promises and the reminder of your power as a creator God to make these promises good and a reminder of your will to make these promises good. You can and you will. Help us, Lord, to keep on keeping on, walking on, trusting you, and whatever part of this chapter is the part that we need as individuals, our prayer is that you would lay that part, that verse, on our hearts and that we would call upon that truth in this Advent season for Christ's sake. Amen.